Welcome to Different From The Other Kids, a weekly podcast for parents of challenging children with your host, Angela Sunis, author of the Amazon best-selling book, Different From The Other Kids. Each week, Angela interviews an individual or professional within the mental health community. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Different From The Other Kids. I'm Angela, your podcast host. Wanted to say thank you so much for joining us today. I have an article here in front of me that I wanted to share with everybody. It's from the author. Her name is Julie Joyce, and she is writing for Bipolar Magazine. And here is an excerpt from it. It's called, My Son and Bipolar Disorder, Where's My Casserole? When my son was diagnosed with bipolar, you could have swore I told people he had the plague. No one brought casseroles to my house or offered their support, yet I got a lot of I'm sorry and very pitiful looks, as if my son had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Mental illness is a lifelong battle, but it is treatable and not terminal. Why does society view it so differently? Why are they so afraid of it? Why are people with mental illness treated like outcasts? Society is definitely afraid of what they do not understand. Just because you can't see it doesn't make it any less important. Why is there such a stigma attached to it and how do we dispel it? If I were to tell those same people my son had cancer, I'm sure the reaction would have been much different. I'm sure my neighbors would be dropping off casseroles and offering their support. I'm sure I would have a list of doctors I could choose from. I'm sure I wouldn't have to wait weeks or months to see a specialty doctor. I'm sure we wouldn't have to spend hours upon hours in an emergency room waiting to get treatment or to find an open bed. I'm sure we would have options for hospital stays and they would cater to sick children. I'm sure my insurance company would let my son get treatment and not given me a certain number of days in a calendar year or an expenditure cap. I'm sure someone would be throwing me a benefit or a GoFundMe page to help defer the rising cost of treatment. (laughs) I'm sure there would be lots of funding for research. I'm sure there would be fundraising events for research and people would be raising awareness. I'm sure the community would be rallying for his recovery. I'm sure people would care. So why don't people care that my son is bipolar? He was just 10 years old when he was diagnosed, a sweet young innocent boy who had no control over his mood swings, a victim of his own brain. I wasn't a bad parent. He wasn't raised in a bad environment. It is not a behavior problem, and he does not choose to be this way. Just because he looks normal doesn't mean he isn't sick. You can't see disabilities or epilepsy, multiple sclerosis, or cancer for that matter, and still they don't get the bad rap mental illness does. She goes a little bit further on here. It is an excellent article. I totally recommend it. This was sent to me by uh, a friend of ours, a friend of the program who has been in the first two books, and The author of it is Julie Joyce, and it is out of Bipolar Magazine. I hope you give it a look. Wanted to introduce you to our next guest. She has been uh, such an amazing support for this program. Her name is Jackie, and she goes by um, Jackie Tyus now. She got married, I guess about two, oh no, longer than that, probably four years ago now. So let me give you a little bit of background on Jackie. She worked as a mental health youth justice social worker. She is also the mother of two adult children. Her eldest son, who is now 27, has struggled with mental health issues for most of his life. His formal diagnosis was Tourette syndrome, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, learning disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, and rage disorder. He has struggled since his teens and continues to with serious addiction issues. 
Jackie was the program supervisor at Turning Point Youth Services, which is a multi-service accredited children's mental health center. The center is located in Toronto's downtown core and provides a range of mental health counseling and support services to at-risk and vulnerable youth aged 12 to 24 years old and their families. Jackie has been part of this program uh, because she has the unique background of being a social worker who deals with youth and also has a child of her own that struggles both with mental health issues and addiction issues. And she has been so, so generous of her time and her candor is um, unmatched. Uh, I really appreciate your help, Jackie. Thank you and welcome to the program. If you can remember, uh, Jackie was um, had a son that had some mental illness uh, challenges and ended up having some uh, drug challenges as well or drug addiction challenges. Um, at the end of our last time that we saw her, um, she gave us um, a little bit of an update as part of the conclusion to the book. Um, and let me quote here, Jack, if I could. Uh, it says, my son has had some successes and failures. One success is that he's entered rehab for the first time in 10 years and is coming off methamphetamine for a lengthy period of time. He struggles with his impulsivity, his mental health issues, making really poor choices and struggling with coming to the point where he can be more independent as a young person. So that's the first update I just wanted to ask you. How's he doing now? How's that? How's that all going? Um, unfortunately, um, it was short-lived. Um, he left their, uh, therapy, uh, rehab in Ottawa after three months because... That's a good long stint. Is it not for... Or did, no. Oh, it uh, isn't? Not for, I believe, when you've lived 10 years on the streets in methamphetamine, and you've used methamphetamine okay. daily for 10 years, uh, and you have mental health issues, including impulsivity, you haven't really learned to live your life without drugs. Okay. And so if it's not a long extended stay where you're detoxing and methamphetamine does create brain brain damage, permanent brain damage when it's used for long term, it also uh, creates even more depression because your serotonin levels are completely depleted when you use methamphetamine and they do not return to normal. So now what you have is you have a, a, a person that's coming off of methamphetamines and now will deal with very severe depression because there, it's a physical part of long-term methamphetamine use. And the depression can be so severe that suicide is not uncommon. So there, there's a lot of physical um, things that have to be dealt with in relationship to that. And de three months is probably just enough time to detox mm -hmm. off, off of that. And then it's about you're left with the person that got engaged in drugs who already had mental health issues. And so now they have to learn how to live without drugs because they've never done it as an adult. And then how are they going to deal with their mental health issues? And unfortunately, he uh, left after he did really well for three months. Did you, were you able to be in contact with him during I that time? I went to visit him a couple of times and he was less impulsive. He was, um, wasn't angry uh, because psych 
uh, violence and psycho and psychotic episodes are normal with methamphetamine use. Mm -hmm. That was reduced. He was on all, he was on his regular medica psychiatric medications, um, which did really help him. And I felt like I, my was getting a, a glimpse of my son that I knew as a, the boy I knew as a child. Um, but the work is hard, and there were still problems after he got off of drugs. He had acquired brain injury. Has uh, you know severe psychiatric issues, including OCD and ADHD, which medication can help. But the likelihood of him able, able to um, maintain and sustain um, long -time, uh, permanent full-time work is really not realistic. So there is the psychological impact of not being a, not feeling less than. Mm -hmm. And the reason generally young people start using drugs is because it makes them feel better and being high it was is better than dealing with the reality of his life because there isn't a lack of appropriate housing and services that could help him you know and and his ontario disability support payment is certainly not enough to live on so is he still in ottawa then or what did he no, make he his was, way back here no he was arrested um for drugs again uh, it wasn't it was marijuana. It wasn't a, but he came to Toronto and about in the summertime. And again, I saw him actually just a couple of days ago. He is actively using methamphetamine and injecting again. Oh, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. So that's where he's at. Um, and he's said that, you know, he doesn't want to live his life sober that's yeah that's uh because he really rough. doesn't have the supports to assist him because 10-year waiting list for supportive housing and uh in toronto mm -hmm. and lack of um people to support young people psychologists and that are youth-centered and having to and and finding psychiatrists that will be able to monitor the medications regularly, mm -hmm. it's it's really a difficult situation. And so then you have a young person that has really all of his adult life never really had sustainable relationships. Um, you know he's not going to probably work again. Mm -hmm. Feels like he doesn't have anything to offer. Mm -hmm. And what's he going to do with himself all day? So when he, did he leave that program um, of, of his own volition? Um, volition I guess what he right. told me um, was that they felt that the program wasn't right for him. Um, and they what asked him. What kind of him, program was it? It was, uh, was a one year through the Salvation Army rehab that was more Christian centered. Um, what was it that... Was he reacting in a way that they felt as though he wasn't? He wasn't part buying of... into the Christianity piece. Oh dear! And I get it because not you know everybody's faith is an individual thing, but mm -hmm. um, he you know part of his psychiatric thing is you know he has you know rage disorder mm -hmm. and impulsivity, so you know he wasn't buying into that part of it, mm -hmm. and that's important that you buy into whether it be faith based on. He couldn't. He couldn't get past that, and um, they felt that it was not that that the space could be better used. Okay, 
So is there an, is there anywhere else for him to go at this point? Is there no? Because the problem is they're not. Do, in, he has an acquired brain injury, Tourette's syndrome, ADHD, OCD, and the pro and rage disorder. That combined with addiction, both of those have to be treated. So he needs treatment for rehabilitation for dual diagnosis. We have probably no public health, no, the public uh, health care system doesn't provide as no facilities like that, mm -hmm. which is why I went to Ottawa, where, why he went to Ottawa. And if he was go, go to the, the U.S. has tons of them, but they're for profit. And so how much is a program like that for say for son? Say realistically for him to stay, say for six months and then go into sober living, maybe 500,000. No. Well, you're paying for the doctors, the psychiatrists, the nurses. I'm not. I'm not knocking how much it is. I guess I'm just shocked with. It's what... not attainable. And so what they wow. do is they offer 60 day rehab. Well, there is no 60 day rehab for a person with severe mental health issues and a methamphetamine mm -hmm. addiction. That so you know you're going in, you're detoxing, but you're not getting rehabilitation because part of what you need to do is how learn how to learn to live without drugs mm -hmm. and and deal with your mental health issues sober, mm -hmm. right? So that takes a long time. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of lured into, okay, we'll give you a 60 day program. We'll give you, they need to be completely out of the environments for like an extended period. What do you hope for now? Well, that's difficult because, um, I mean, I've had to obviously set boundaries because I can't have, um, an active drug addict, um, even though he is my son in my home, mm -hmm. the boundaries which have, and he's fully aware of them and, mm -hmm. um, is that he cannot come to my home. Mm -hmm. I will occasionally meet him for a visit. Um, and it's usually coffee and, you know, just to talk and we don't, I don't try and convince him not to do drugs. He's already made it clear. That. It's yes. beyond that. Um, yeah. But it's just my way of saying I'm still your mother and I love you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, things like Christmas Eve, I need him for lunch, give him a present. And though it breaks my heart, mm -hmm. I have to go because I can't have the whole family disrupted. He can't he can't participate in family functions. Mm -hmm. That's been really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and it causes a great deal of stress for me and something I struggle with always. But I do know that I cannot have my entire life. Um, be brought down by his active drug use and the crises that that causes. Um, but I do want my child to know that I love him. Mm -hmm. And if he does need the support, if he really is serious, I will help him. You did allude to in the conclusion of the book, um, the first book that we did that wasn't that long ago that we actually mm -hmm. spoke, that you had said that there was... Um, uh, you've had a series of traumas uh, in your life, I only know, because I know you personally. Right. Um, but that one of the major traumas, of course, was, was dealing with this situation with your son and that you were uh, seeking some counsel yourself uh, in, I would imagine that that would be part of why. Right. Uh, you had to seek some counsel for yourself and take a bit of a leave uh, from your job, which is uh, another traumatizing situation. Um I just wanted to ask how you're, how, what's happening with uh, you now. And I know that you were talking about the lack of supports for even you going and looking for some post-traumatic stress uh, support. 
Um, it's been really difficult, and my family doctor has been my physician for over 28 years, thank goodness, so he knows my, you know, my struggles, um, and he knows my family um, and what we've dealt with. He has not been able to find a psychiatrist that is doing private practice. It's, it's almost impossible nowadays. Um, being, being a social worker myself, I know the system, and I, if anybody could get services, I could get them. That's what challenges me in looking at your situation is if you can't get them, how does anybody else try to get them? Well, currently, because I have been unable to get them, I went to, had an assessment at CAMH for, um, you know, drug, sorry, and KMH is the the Canadian Addiction and Mental Health Center. Right. Thank you. Um, And the psychiatrist basically just agreed with the diagnosis that my doctor had given me and did a medication referral for my doctor. But that is it. And they don't do anything else. Um, That took three months to get that assessment. My medication is still not working optimally. So I'm now going to a Trillium hospital um, to see. So your meds still aren't right from June. And they only did one assessment? Yeah. Did they not, did they, because I know in Christina's case, or at least with youth, I don't know whether this is normal or not, but because uh, she was in the outpatient program, they checked her and then they monitored her for a period of time. They didn't do that with so, you? No, what happened, the psychiatrists do not monitor the medications for adults now. What they do is they send a re- uh, recommendations to the physician, family physician, your family physician is not equipped to deal with this. No, absolutely not. But, but this is all... horrifying. So now they're not even checking on adults that are going through. No, because... Oh, for God's sakes. Um, the Trillium Center Hospital called me, mm-hmm. and they did an assessment. And they were very, very nice. And, she, you know, she said, what do you need from me? And I said, well, I said, what I do need is my medication to be, you know, sorted out because mm-hmm. it's not working. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said there's been moderate improvement, and mm-hmm. you know, I you know, I realize medication isn't the whole entire thing, you mm-hmm. could, but it it's definitely not working. Um, so there's that aspect of it, and what they had suggested is that a psychiatrist would review the meds, and you know, hopefully be able to come to that. But monitoring them regularly would not happen. Um, that that would be the family physician, um, and then I said, well, you know, right now. I'm paying for a private psychologist, which is really expensive. Mm-hmm. I need long-term treatment mm-hmm. for this. Mm-hmm. And I won't be able to continue on a regular basis. I, fortunately, I've made it a priority, but I cannot pay for it privately long-term. Mm-hmm. And so I had asked if there were any psychiatrists that they could refer me to in private practice because it's then covered by OHIP. Um, and they were going to refer me to, it's called the Aberfoyle Center, which has psychiatrists and it's OHIP funded. But again, it's for a limited time. And someone with post-traumatic stress and multiple traumas cannot be treated in 10 sessions. You know what? I am going to ask Jackie one day to take us through her personal history uh, so that you get an idea of where she has been in her life. Uh, she's a personal hero of mine for the fact that she's still here. A uh, personal hero f- of mine for the fact that she still lives and breathes and contributes to every and everybody that she meets. Um, and we'll go through that another day, Jack. But okay. it, I think it's because uh, for you to fully understand to the extent that uh, Jackie would uh, require a, a little bit of a hand, 
is, I think, an important framing uh, opportunity for those that are listening. Okay. Um, I'm going to invite you back for another um, episode, if I may, and we're going to talk about something a little bit different and within the realm of your professional experience. And we were going to have a conversation about youth engagement and how important youth engagement can be for all youth, um, but specifically for those that suffer with uh, mental illness. Uh, so once again, Jackie, I appreciate your candor as always. I appreciate your brutal honesty, um, really, and your and it, your your heroic ability to be able to come forward and just speak your truth. It's really important to everybody. A lot of people are dodging a lot of truth, and a lot of people are dodging real issues. And you're not. You're hitting them full on, and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for talking to our parents today. Thanks for listening to Different from the Other Kids, made possible with the support of Regal Junction, your connection to quality and stylish premium pet products. You can find them online at www.regaljunction.ca. Music and editing is a product of Among the Crowd Productions. You can hear more at www.amongthecrowd.ca. We'll see you next week. And now a disclaimer. In general, I, Angela Sunis, am not a doctor, and I certainly don't play one on the internet. I'm a parent, period. The advice from me presented on Different from the Other Kids does not replace advice received directly from a medical health professional. If you think you need help, I do recommend making an appointment with your physician or other appropriate health care provider.